Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Grumlaw again. We are so happy that you are here today. We're so glad that you decided to make Grumlaw a part of your week. Uh, and that's honestly, that's our hope and our prayer is that this will become a part of your weekly rhythm. You won't let this just be this one-time experience, but you'll come back two, three, four, even five times and really get an accurate feel of what we're all about here. And we're confident, even if this sounds like a little superstitious at this point, uh, we're confident that if you do decide to come back each week, God will actually start to do things in such a way in your life uh, that this will be a place that you want to come. Not a place that you feel obligated to, not a place that you feel forced to show up to, but again, you'll actually look forward to this part, this hour of every single week. So again, we are so glad that you're here. We're particularly happy that you are here because we are starting, as we've already alluded to, this brand new series today called The Grumlaw 7. Thought everybody would like applaud at that moment. No, I'm just kidding. I recognize that at this point, uh, that has little to no relevance to your life, but I'm confident that by the end of the series, if you stick with us here for the next seven weeks, one, you'll understand what the Grumlaw 7 are, but even more important than that, you'll understand why the Grumlaw 7 have anything to do with your life and why they are, in fact, important to your life. So I'm not sure how much attention you paid as you walked in today or, or last week, but on the left-hand side, there are all these banners immediately as soon as you walk into our building, and those actually happen to be the Grumlaw 7. And so I'm going to be a little anticlimactic right now. I'm just going to tell you what all of the Grumlaw 7 are right now. We're not going to reveal them week by week. And so you ready for this? Maybe get a little drum roll right now. Maybe a little, a little of that action. Okay, here we go. Without further ado, like zero of you drum rolled. I appreciate that. Okay, we're going to start here with the Grumlaw 7. You ready? Okay, go ahead and throw that up there. Weekends, baptism, daily encounter, generosity, groups, serve, and share. And so what we're going to do over the next seven weeks is we're going to unpack these one by one. And again, by the end of the seven weeks, I'm confident that you'll have a really good understanding of what these things are. We're going to tell you why we think that they are important for you as you continue to take steps towards Jesus and you continue to explore what it means to be a Jesus follower. Because here's really what we want to avoid here at Grumlaw. We want to avoid moments where you show up here and you're excited, like you're genuinely excited about what happened here on Sunday morning. You maybe actually even feel a little bit convicted. You're walking out to your car and you're like, man, there, there need to be some changes in my life. Uh, you maybe even feel a little bit inspired, but then about five minutes later, you're sitting in the car and you're going, what the heck am I supposed to do with that? I mean, what now? What are my next steps? I mean, what am I supposed to do with everything that I heard and I listened to on that Sunday morning? We want to make sure that we avoid that stuff. And so we have come up with these Grumlaw 7, these seven elements that we think will help you move closer to God. We think that your step, regardless of where you're at in this whole faith journey, we're confident that your next step is somewhere there among the Grumlaw 7. So there's not a specific order to these things. It's not like, hey, if you do these things perfectly, one through seven, just maybe you'll get into heaven. No, 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 it's not like that. But we're confident that if you do these things, if these things are a part of your life, that there's probably a really good chance that your relationship with Jesus is on the right track. And we're really confident that you will definitely be moving closer to God if you are taking these things seriously. And here's the amazing thing about that. As we move closer to God, as you move closer to God, he moves closer to you. That is a promise. As you move closer to God, as you take steps towards God, he will inevitably move closer to you. And so today, we're going to kick this series off by talking about weekends. But before we go any farther, I'd like to pray for me and pray for you. So let me do that now. Father, we thank you that you are a God um, that cares so much about each and every person in this room. We thank you for what you're already doing uh, through this church. We thank you for the lives that are being impacted. But God, honestly, 
unless you show up and you do things here this morning, it's going to be a big waste of time. And so we just ask that you would do things uh, in each of our lives individually. You would speak to us individually, and we wouldn't walk out of here just feeling convicted or just excited, but we'd walk away with real steps of like, okay, here's some things that I can really change. Here's some steps that I can take in my life. It's your name we pray. Amen. Have any of you, um, random question, have any of you ever been lost before by show of hands? Ever been lost? Okay, so quite a few of you. Are any of you currently scared of the dark? Yeah, not so many hands for that until you realize, even as an adult, that when you get lost in the dark, you're like, maybe I do actually have a healthy fear of the dark. Uh, those two things kind of came to a collision when I was about 12 years old. Uh, I grew up in a family, and we, we still are this type of family. We, we love to go deer hunting. Like, that's just kind of a part of, of us as a family. And at 12 years old, it was finally the age that my dad would allow us to go out into the blind and hunt by ourselves. And so I'll never forget that day. It was, uh, it was opening day, and we're heading out, and uh, we wake up in the middle of these woods. We have these trailers on, you know, these hundreds of acres that we leased with a couple other families up north, and I, I couldn't sleep that night. I woke up, and I was so stinking excited, and I get all dressed, and uh, my dad and I, we started heading for our blinds, so we get to walk about halfway there together, and then at a certain point, there was like a, you know, a V in the road, and my dad would head one direction, and I would head the other direction. Now, keep in mind, I had walked to this blind that I was going to that morning 20, 30 times, but never had I walked to it in the dark, and if you know anything about deer hunting, you wake up before the sun comes out, and you get out into your blind before the sun comes up, and so here I am that day, and I'm getting to kind of this point where my dad's going to go one direction, and I'm going to go the other direction, and, and he kind of gets down on one knee, and he says, okay, son, you know where you're going, and I'm so confident. I'm like, dad, you don't need to tell me. He's like, okay, but remember, up here, you can go. I'm like, da, da, da. I cut him off. I'm like, dad, you don't need to tell me where to go. I know exactly where to go. I found this blind before. This is so easy, and he's like, Okay, now keep in mind, this is 18 years ago, and 18 years ago, we didn't have cell phones, so once, like, he split off and he went his way, like, I had no way of actually communicating with him at that point, point. and so my dad starts heading his direction, and I start going down the trail the other direction, and then I get to this tree that I knew that I had to take a left on, my dad had even marked it for me, and I take the left, and at that point, I had to walk about 80 yards to get to this blind, which looked like a big outhouse in the middle of the woods, it should have been pretty easy to find, and so I start walking towards this blind where I, I know that it is at. And after I walk for a while, I stop and I'm like, I feel like I should have found it by now, right? And, and just that little bit of panic starts to set in because again, it's dark. I can't see much more than five feet in front of my face. And I'm like, it's okay. I probably just didn't go as far as I, I think I should have gone. And so I walk maybe another 20 yards and still no blind. And then I start to do the thing that you should never do when you're lost in the middle of the woods. I just start zigzagging. I'm just starting going like this and just like hoping that I'm going to just run into this thing. And before I know it, complete panic has taken over. I am in the middle of these woods going, I have no idea where I'm at. I don't know which direction it is back to the camp. I don't know which direction it is back to the two track that I walked off of. I have no idea where I am at. I mean, just complete panic has taken over. And every little noise, the littlest bit of wind blowing, a little you know, leaf would fall from a tree. I'm swinging the gun around. like I'm like a convinced that some gremlin or some man is living in the woods and he's going to attack me. Well, fortunately for me, it was the morning, right? And, and the sun has an undefeated record. It always comes up at some point. And so the sun finally did start creeping up, and there was the blind about 20 yards away from me. I went and I got in that blind so stinking fast. I didn't see jack squat that morning, but I didn't really even care. I was just happy that I didn't get killed out in the middle of the woods. Now, the reality is, when you are lost, it's terrible, right? And it's not really just a kid thing. Regardless of how old you are, when you get lost, when that feeling of, oh my gosh, I have no idea where I am at right now. When that feeling sets in, 
I don't care how old you are. It is terrible. You just shut down. It becomes next to impossible to focus on anything else. You almost lose your mind. I mean, any amount of sense goes completely out of the window. I mean, you lose all ability to just slow down and think rationally. It's just gone. In fact, when you're lost, it almost always gets worse before it gets better. When you are lost, it almost always gets lost before it gets better. Think about any time that you or someone you know has been lost. Any time. From the moment that you realized you were lost until you were found, and I know you all got found at some point, otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here today. But in between that time, I guarantee you that things got worse before they got better. And it typically gets worse before it gets better because panic mode sets in way before slow down and think rationally mode happens to set in. Now, this is true in literal moments when we are lost, but it also happens to be in figurative moments when we're lost in our lives as well. Um, I'll be vulnerable right now and and, and share with you that back in college, uh, I was not the smartest of human beings. Uh, I made a lot of really, really poor decisions. And I grew up in this incredible Christian home with really loving parents who, who really, like, set out to make sure that I didn't do stupid things, but then I went to college and I did stupid things anyway. Parents, if you're going through that, th- there's hope, I promise. Um, and so I, I go to college and I'm kind of doing my own thing and my, my relationship with the Lord is terrible. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I guess I would still call myself a Christian, but not a lot of good things happening on in my life. And uh, I spent a lot of time in particular just partying and drinking with my friends. And one particular evening, I went to this party with my friends about two o'clock in the morning and all my other friends uh, they had left, and so it was just kind of me with a bunch of random people that I really didn't know, and uh, I was told this because I really don't remember it, and again, this is really embarrassing looking back to this, uh, but I found myself out in a barn, literally in the middle of winter, it's about 20 degrees, and I was wearing a t-shirt and jeans, much like this, uh, and I'm out in that barn, and I drank a little bit more, I ended up falling asleep on a tool bench, and had my older brother's uh, friend not happened to see me there, who just happened to be at that party, he's like, I think I know this random person that is sleeping on a tool bench in a barn in a t-shirt when it's 20 degrees outside, uh, scooped me up, took me back to her house that evening. I woke up there, like, again, incredibly embarrassing. Wake up there, have no idea how in the heck I got there. And I think back to that, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, like, what would have happened to me had that person not found me that night and actually show me some compassion And obviously, since then, things have changed, right? I no longer get intoxicated and fall asleep in barns in the middle of winter. Um, But things, when my life, when I was truly lost, and I look back to that stage in my life, and I was so lost, it got way worse before it eventually got better. And chances are that your life or someone very close to you has a similar story. I could go on and on and on with people that I can think of right now who were lost and things got significantly, significantly worse, but eventually they got better. Unfortunately, I have an equal number of stories of people that I can think of right now who got lost, things got worse, and that's pretty much it. They're still there. They're still lost. They're still stuck. They're still looking for that way out. Now, what's so interesting about this, and keep in mind, this isn't a Christian thing. This isn't a churchy thing. This is just a human being thing, and this is a profound thought. You ready for this? Nobody likes being lost. There has never been anyone in the history of the world that enjoys being lost, that likes that feeling of, oh my gosh, I have no idea where I am. I have no idea what's coming next. Nobody enjoys that feeling of being lost. Nobody enjoys that feeling of, man, I, I really don't know where I am headed. I'm not really sure where my life is headed. Nobody likes asking themselves, what am I really working towards? What's the point of life? I mean, is this really our fa- final destination? Do we just live and then we die and then That's it. 
is there something more out there? And regardless of where you're at on this whole spiritual journey, regardless if you've been going to church your entire life, or regardless if this is your first time walking into a church, maybe this is your very first experience in a place like this, by virtue of the fact that you are here this morning, I know this, by virtue of the fact that you are here this morning, you are at least curious if there's more to life. You're at least At the very least, you are unsure whether life is really just all about going through the motions of waking up and brushing your teeth and getting ready and going to work and then coming home and watching a couple hours of television and then going back to sleep and just doing it all over again. And the reason that I bring all this up, the reason that I bring this idea of being lost up is because I've been there. In fact, every single one of us have been there. We have all been lost at some point point. And some of you, you would be lost right now. Now, you might not necessarily put it in those terms. You might not necessarily think of it in that way, but we have all been lost at some point. In fact, you could even say that we were born this way, but here is the good news. And it also happens to be the reason that we are starting this new church right here in Grand Blank. God does not want you to stay lost. It was never part of God's plan for you to stay in this rut, to stay lost, for you continue wondering, is this really it? In fact, it's actually why he sent his one and his only son to die for us. Now, I want to pause right there and just say something for a second, because we can be so quick at churches to talk about this and be like this whole idea, and even people that, that again, are new to this whole Christianity thing, they're probably familiar with that part of the story, this idea that God sent his son, and, and he sent his son to die for us, you know, to take the place of our sins, but you have to remember, this is not some fairy tale. This isn't some story that Christians invented after the fact to just kind of make themselves feel better about ourselves. This is real. God sent his son for you, which, mind you, he didn't have to do because he so desperately wants a relationship with you, because he doesn't want you to stay lost, because he doesn't want you just going through the motions of life. There is indeed something better out there. If you keep showing up here on a regular basis, you're gonna hear me say this all the time. God does not just want you to follow him because it sounds like the right thing to do. God doesn't want you just to follow him because he's on this kind of arbitrary power trip. No, 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 no. It's so much better than that. God wants you to follow him because he has your best interest in mind. And believe it or not, he knows that the best possible way for you to live your life, the most fulfilling, joy-filled, purpose-filled way for you to live your life is one where you have a relationship with him. He absolutely has your best interest in mind. He wants your life to be better. He wants to make you better at life. He doesn't want you to continue wondering what's next. He doesn't want you to stay lost. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, Luke is a book that we find in the New Testament. The Bible's kind of divided up into two sections. We have the Old Testament, which documents a bunch of stuff before Jesus ever stepped foot on earth. And we have the New Testament, which documents Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and a bunch of events that took place afterwards. And here in the book of Luke, pretty early on in the New Testament, it's also one of the books that we call a gospel book. Uh, You might actually hear that referred to as the good news. We call it the good news because it talks all about Jesus. There in the book of Luke, chapter 19, it says this. It says, for the Son of Man, which is Jesus, for Jesus came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus was sent specifically so that we never have to wonder again, is there more to life? He came to save us, all of us, because we have all been lost at some point in our lives. And this isn't just some one-off statement that we see here in the book of Luke. Time and time again, all throughout scripture, 
we see evidence of this. We see very plain messages where Jesus is like, hey, this is why I came. Now, I recognize that for some of you, the Bible holds little to no relevance in your life right now. You're not going to just believe something based on the Bible said so. But this isn't just something that Jesus talked about. This is something that he lived. This is something that Jesus demonstrated. In fact, when Jesus uh, started his ministry on earth, one of the things that kind of grabbed people's attention almost immediately is that Jesus wouldn't go around and he wouldn't spend time with like the religious elite. He wouldn't spend time with, you know, these people that we read about in scripture, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He wouldn't go and just only spend time with nobles and officials and kings. In fact, quite the opposite. He spent time with all of the people that society kind of seemed to reject. He spent time with prostitutes and the lamed and the crippled and tax collectors, all these people that the rest of the world would look at and go, what are you doing? And in fact, uh, this story that we're going to be talking about today, it's one of my favorite stories that Jesus ever told during his ministry on earth. Uh, the reason that he tells this story, in fact, is because the Pharisees, some of the religious elite people of the day, are looking at Jesus and they're starting to question him. They're going, why do you spend so much time with these, these losers, these people that are so dirty, these mistake-prone individuals. I mean, what is wrong with you? Don't you know that you're not supposed to interact with these type of people? And Jesus, rather than coming out and just blasting them and telling them why they're all idiots, uh, he would do it in a much more subtle way. He starts to tell this story in such a way, and he would often do this. I mean, masterful storyteller, the best storyteller to ever live. He would tell these stories in such a way, and this is one of these examples that we're going to read here in a second, that about halfway through the story, the audience that he was talking to would go, wait a minute, he's talking about us. Dang it, he worked us again. And so here we pick up here, again, in the book of Luke, he tells the story, again, one of my favorites, and I think one of the reasons that I love this story so much, because to a certain extent, it describes every single one of our lives. Now, he puts the Pharisees in their place, but even more than that, he beautifully explains the reason that he came. So we start here in Luke chapter 15. Again, we find this in the New Testament. It says, Jesus told them this story. And again, this was in response to these Pharisees that are questioning, why are you spending time with all these people who are so dirty? He says, a man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, we can't totally appreciate because these sorts of things don't really happen in, in, in modern society. And, but to the original audience, this would have just been like, oh my gosh, like what a disgusting thing for this son to do. Because it's pretty customary back in this day that if you were a father and you owned any amount of land, if you had any amount of wealth, that once you passed away, you would divide your wealth up among your sons. But this son says, you know what? I don't really want to wait until you die. I want it now. So by asking his father, hey, I want my share of the inheritance right now, he was essentially looking to his father and telling him, I wish you were dead. I am not patient enough to wait, you know, for, for you to actually pass away. I want this stuff now. Give it to me now. I don't care about you. I don't care about this family. I wish you were dead. Give me my money now. So again, to this original audience, they're like, oh my gosh, like what is wrong with this kid? What a terrible, terrible thing to ask. But in fact, the father agreed to divide his wealth among his sons. It says later, a few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. So not only did he communicate that to his father, hey, I don't really care about you, I wish you were dead, but he punctuates this by actually leaving 
And again, back then, this wasn't normal. Like, people didn't, kids didn't just leave and go away for years at a time and then maybe decide to come back. I mean, again, this would have just been, like, so offensive to this family for this kid to go off and go to this distant land. And then it says, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. Now, we kind of saw in that video right before I jumped up here kind of the modern-day portrayal of that. And when you think of wild living, it's pretty much probably exactly what you're thinking of. He went out and he wasted it on prostitutes and on drinking and on drugs. And he goes out and he blows through this money very quickly quickly. Money that was supposed to last him for the rest of his life. It was a lot of money. And in almost no times, he wastes every single penny of it. It says, about the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now remember what we already talked about. When you're lost, things tend to get a lot worse before they actually get better. And we are seeing very clear evidence of this with this young man right here. He, he wastes all the money, the money's gone, but now this famine sweeps across the land. And again, back then, when a famine came across, it was like life or death. And the only way that you were actually going to get something to eat is if one, you prepared well, and you were saying, okay, someday there's gonna be a famine, so we're gonna stock our storehouses and we're gonna have enough food here, you know, in case a famine happens, or you had a lot of money. And then you could go out and you could purchase more food at an exorbitant price. This guy had neither. He just blew through all of his money. So to be in his situation and not have any food and not have any money during a famine, this was a big deal. He was looking at, okay, I legitimately might starve to death right now. And in fact, he goes out and he does, again, to the original audience, this would have been just like, oh my gosh, just disgusting. He goes out and he gets a job feeding pigs. Now, there probably isn't really a modern-day equivalent to this. The best example I can think of is, uh, I'm sure a lot of you have been to Mackinac Island before, and I always, when I'm in Mackinac Island, if it's in the middle like, of the heat, you, know, you always get those nice warm wafts of candy and horse manure, and uh, I'm walking around the island, and you see, right, like, they don't have any cars around Mackinac Island, right? It's all horses, and horses obviously relieve themselves from time to time, and so they have these you know, piles of, of horse feces all over the island, and I'm like, well, who cleans this stuff up? I remember that thinking that the first time I was over there. I mean, this place is a mess. And then all of a sudden, you see these guys come out of nowhere, and they're scooping it up. And I'm going, what kind of bad decisions did you have to make in life to get that job? <laughs> and so, like, that's always, like, when I read this story, again, maybe just getting a glimpse into my brain, I'm like, okay, that, that's, like, what I feel like would be the modern-day equivalent of this. But it probably still doesn't totally do it justice because, again, back then, you would have been hard-pressed to find a pig anywhere throughout Israel. I mean, they looked so down on pigs. Pigs were the grossest, the nastiest of nasty. In fact, I mean, they did all this stuff that if you even touched a pig, it made you ceremonially unclean, which again, back then, we don't have time to unpack all what that means, but it was a big deal. You didn't touch a pig, you didn't eat pig, you didn't eat bacon, like you stayed away from pigs. So the fact that this guy has lowered himself into a position that he is working among the pigs, that his job is to look after pigs. Again, this original audience, particularly the Pharisees, the religious elite, would have been like, oh my gosh, I mean, just kill that kid now. I mean, that is disgusting. There's nothing worse that you could do. But again, it says no one gave him anything. It continues, it says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. He's looking back at his time with his father, and he's thinking about the servants that worked for his dad, and he's like, man, 
even those people had plenty to eat. I mean, yeah, they weren't looked at very highly in society, but they had plenty of food to eat. I mean, my goodness, what I wouldn't do to be one of my dad's hired servants. And so he comes up with this. He says, I'll go home to my father and I'll say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. He's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go home, and obviously my dad is not going to want anything to do with me. I mean, look at what I have done. But maybe, just maybe, if I beg hard enough, if I say I'm sorry enough, maybe he will take me on as a hired servant. At least then I will have enough to eat. So at this point, he's probably motivated by hunger, right? Almost exclusively. He's like, I just want something to eat. And I look back at these servants, and they had plenty to eat. So okay, so maybe I'll go back for that reason. But imagine how much pride you would have to suck up to go back. I mean, try to put yourself in this guy's shoes. You, you wished your father was dead. You took the money. You wasted every penny of it. And to go back Imagine the humiliation you would feel as you approached your father, as you saw your brother and you thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to explain this to him too. I mean, oh my gosh, the pride you would have to suck up is enormous. And, and this is such a, a huge lesson that every one of us need to learn here. When you let your pride win, you always lose 100% of the time. Now, oftentimes, you drag down other people along with you, but at the very, very least, when you let your pride win, you always lose. We as people can be so insanely stubborn. God is trying to grab our attention. He's actively pursuing us, and oftentimes, the biggest thing that stands in the way with what God wants to do in each of our lives is our own pride. Uh, Dale Carnegie, who is a, a famous author and um, motivational speaker, and in fact, a lot of his texts, despite the fact that he passed away in the mid-50s, they still live on. And one of his most popular books is called How to Win Friends and Influence People. And one of the quotes that he has in this book, it's incredible. He says, when dealing with people, remember you are not dealing with creatures of logic, which almost sounds counterintuitive, but it's so true. He says, but with creatures bristling with prejudice and motivated by pride and vanity. Our pride will cause us to throw logic completely out the window and we won't do things that we know that we absolutely should do because we want to be right even though we know we are wrong. How much sense does that make? We can be so prideful. And so it says, so he returned home to his father. He actually did it. He goes home to his father. He sucked up his pride. And it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with anger and resentment, he ran to his son, tackled him, and punched him. That's actually not how the story goes. That's how it would go if we wrote the story. But this is actually <laughs> what happened. It says this. He says, so he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. And filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. And what beautiful imagery this draws up. Jesus is giving us just a small snapshot, a glimpse to just how much God loves each and every one of us when we decide that being lost is terrible and we are finally ready to surrender our lives to him. He's giving us this, this imagery of a father who is constantly waiting for us to turn to him. And almost immediately he starts explaining to his dad. He says, his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. 
But his father said to his servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring off for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. You know what's incredible here? What doesn't happen? The dad doesn't look at him and say, where have you been? He doesn't ask him, where is the money? You didn't just blow through all that money in that short amount of time, right? He doesn't ask him a single thing. He just goes immediately into compassion and mercy and celebration mode. And why? He says this, and this is perhaps the most profound statement in this whole story. He says, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. Jesus has a love for the lost that is indescribable. He went through unspeakable torture and pain and mockery for you. While he was nailed to that cross, you ran across his mind. You are worth it. He does not want you to stay lost. God is pursuing you. It's not an accident that you are sitting here today. It's not an accident that you're feeling the way that you're feeling. God is trying to grab your attention. In fact, it's why he sent his son for you, to grab your attention and the attention of the world. But the story doesn't end there. Remember, there's the older son. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. When he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. They said, your brother is back, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. But the older brother was angry and would not go in. In fact, so much so that his father had to come out and beg him. I mean, think about this moment. The son's come back. It's a big celebration, and here we have the older brother And let's be honest, probably a lot like what our reactions would be like, he's ticked. He's angry. He's angry, one, at his brother. How dare he even show his face around here again after what he did to his dad. But he's probably, probably angry at the father as well. How dare you, dad? Why would you ever open up your arms to this guy again? Kick him out of here, scold him, at least let him have it for a second. But here you are now throwing a party But he replied, all these years, I've slaved for you. I mean, again, just imagine this older son just pointing the finger at his dad, yelling at his dad, and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never even gave me one young goat for a feast with my friends. Imagine like your children telling you that now. Never even gave me a goat, right? Like never even gave me an iPhone. Yet, When this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? How dare you, Dad? And for so many of us, this is what our relationship with God is like. We say, God, I have done so much for you. I show up on Sunday mornings. I haven't put some money in one of those buckets. I've done all this stuff for you, and yet what have you done for me? 
I've done A, so you better do B. But his father said to him, look, dear son, and just imagine him looking at his son, his older son, in the same way, with the same love, with the same compassion that he looked at that younger son when he came back. He says, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day. For your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. I love this story, as I already said, for a lot of different reasons. Maybe because it resonates so much with me personally and for so many other people who are sitting here today who have had their lives transformed because of Jesus. But I think I love it more than anything because it shows Jesus' unequaled love for the lost. Punctuated, by the way, when he sacrificed himself on a cross for me and for you. You know, it's one thing for us to do good to those who do good to us. In fact, we really deserve no credit for that whatsoever. That's a really, really easy thing to do. But Jesus came for sinners. He came for people who are far from him, for those who blatantly disobey him. And despite the fact that every single one of us turn our back to God on a very regular basis, he still loves us and comes running to us whenever we decide to turn to him. And so as we wrap up this, this morning, I, I have a question for all of us. And I, I don't want you to answer out loud. Don't look around. But like, I really want you to take this seriously. Really answer this question to yourself. Do you relate more to the younger or the older brother? Are you more the younger brother who, who's going through the motions of life, living as you want to live? Life is just a party. It's just kind of, you know, whatever. It's just all about having a good time. But yet you know there's still something missing. There is still this void that you've kind of been unable to figure out. And it's fine time to finally start running to God and begin living a life devoted to him. Or are you the older brother? And you become disenchanted with the sinners that you see around you. You're entitled, you're full of pride, and God's begging you just like the father begged the older son to come to the party, to have a heart more like his. To love the lost like he loves the lost. This is why we do what we do here on Sunday mornings. We have this crew of people, these maniacs, that get here at 6.30 in the morning to set all this up. And we do a lot of planning that goes into these weekends and making sure that your kids have an experience as well where they can encounter God. Why do we do all this? We do this because of the example that Jesus laid for us. We do this because Jesus has this relentless love for the lost. We want to create a place where people who are far from God where people who are just beginning to explore what this whole Christianity thing is all about can come and they can ask questions. A safe place where they're not judged, where they feel welcomed, where they can begin taking steps towards God because again, as we've already said, when you move closer to God, he will inevitably move closer to you. We will always be a place, this church will always be a place that relentlessly goes after those who are far from God. This past week, um, we, we run these advertisements on Facebook and stuff. In fact, some of you are probably here because you saw something randomly on Facebook. And that's not just because we just had really great placement. That's just Facebook kind of working its magic. And uh, I imagine that somebody had seen a number of these advertisements on Facebook. And uh, he wrote the church a rather nasty message. And it was kind of filled with expletives. But 
basically punctuated by the fact of like, keep God out of our community. Science is greater than God. And uh, my first reaction was kind of like, okay, you feel very, very passionately about this. Uh, but after I kind of thought about it for a second, I wrote him a message back. I was like, hey, and the gist of it was like, I'm sure that if I had your experience in life, I would be every bit as disenchanted with Christianity as you are. But in fact, that's actually what we're trying to do here. We're trying to create a place that doesn't feel so intrusive, a place where you just feel welcome. You can just come and kind of ask questions. We would love to see you on an upcoming Sunday. And he actually responded with not expletives the second time around. And we've been going back and forth, and I don't know if he'll ever walk through these doors, but those are the people that I want to see show up here. I want to see people who are far from God recognize that the best way for us to live our lives is one in relationship with him. He doesn't want to just arbitrarily follow him because it sounds like the right thing to do. Again, it's so much better than that. He absolutely has our best interest in mind. And so what are your next steps? For some of you, if you relate more to that younger brother, your next step might be really simple. Keep coming back. Keep exploring. Keep leaning in. Keep figuring out that as you take steps closer to God, he will move closer to you. For those of you that aren't lost anymore, you're like, no, I'm, I relate more to that older brother. The incredible thing is God invites you to help. He wants you to be a part of his plan. In fact, he longs to use you. So who are you going to bring with you? It's not a ploy so we can get more people in this room. No, 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 not at all. But who are your coworkers? Who are your neighbors? Who are the people in your community? Every single week, and this week in particular, there are these little business cards that are sitting on your seat. I hope that we find fewer of those business cards on the ground this week than we did last week. And I know it's easy to just kind of chuck those suckers underneath there, but I want you to take that seriously. Who are you going to take and hand that to this week and invite them into this community? The number one reason that people do not show up to church is because they were never invited. It feels intimidating at first. I promise it's not nearly as terrible as we have dreamt it up to be in our heads. God longs to use you. In Luke 15, 7, it says, there is more joy in heaven. This is a profound statement. Over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Jesus has an insatiable love for those who are far from him. He didn't just talk about it. He punctuated it with the most selfless act in the history of the world when he gave his life for you. Pursue him, he is waiting for you. And if you've already taken that step, jump on board with him, be a part of what he is trying to do in other people's lives. Let me pray for us.